Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode Number 13, Nancy Martyr, Juries and Lay Participation, American Perspectives and Global Trends. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang, from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. Our goal is to bring a virtual workshop to you every week throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Nancy Martyr. Nancy is Professor of Law and Director of the Justice John Paul Stevens Jury Center at Chicago-Kent College of Law. Nancy teaches civil procedure and a course on juries, judges, and trials. Her scholarship focuses on the jury, including issues such as peremptory challenges, jury instructions, and the effect of technology. Her recent article, co-authored with Valerie Hans, introduces a set of symposia, one in Onyadi, Spain, and one at Chicago-Kent, that promoted a comparative perspective on juries and other forms of lay participation. The article discusses some of the different ways that lay persons are used in common law and civil law jurisdictions, as well as the different mechanisms used to control them. This comparative perspective then offers a path for looking at the American jury. Nancy, thanks a lot for being on Excited Utterance. It's a pleasure to have you. I'm glad to join you. You and Valerie Hans have been conducting a series of conferences on juries and their role in other countries. Can you tell us more about those conferences and what your goals were in putting those on? Sure. We've held two conferences so far, one in Onyadi, Spain, which is in the Basque country in Spain, and one here at Chicago, Kent, in Chicago. And with the first conference in Onyadi, what we were trying to do was bring together jury scholars from across the globe. So we had 25 jury scholars, and we asked them to talk about juries or mixed courts or mixed tribunals in their own country. And both traditional juries and mixed courts are ways of bringing lay participants into the justice system. The idea behind the conference was to learn what different countries are doing because practices that work in one country can work in another. And so we don't have to reinvent the wheel. The jury systems face common challenges, it's important to hear how different countries deal with these different challenges. The conference at Chicago Kent focused on the American jury. And the idea there was, again, to look at challenges that the American jury is facing and what kinds of reforms might help address those challenges, but with an eye to what's going on in the rest of the world. And again, can we adopt what's going on as a way of improving our own system? Both conferences, we had practitioners panels. So we brought in lawyers and judges and former jurors with the eye to learning from people who are actually working with juries or serving on juries. So there were many topics discussed at the conferences, I'm sure. I'm going to try to focus on two that, at least to my mind, have greater proof implications and might actually be less familiar with our audience. So one of the topics that featured prominently at the Onyadi conference was the rise of reasoned verdicts in European countries. 
Can you tell us a little bit about how reasoned verdicts work? Reasoned verdicts are very interesting. Essentially, what the jury is being asked to do is to provide reasons for its decisions. And we see this in Spain, which is where the conference was held. They have a constitutional provision for the jury. And along with that, the jury has to give reasons. In other words, it has to provide explanation for how it reached its verdict, what evidence it relied on, and it has to do this on its own. I think the idea behind it is one of fairness to the defendant in a criminal case that you should know why the jury reached the verdict that it reached. And there is a rising trend toward this because there was a case that was brought before the European Court of Human Rights. And even though it didn't say you had to have a reasoned verdict, it had language suggesting that this might be a pattern for the future. The clear benefit to the reasoned verdict is that the defendant actually knows what the reasoning was. This is very similar to the administrative context. What are the drawbacks of that reason verdict option? I'm glad you asked. There are a number of drawbacks. One is that these are lay people and giving reasons that are acceptable to a judge can be a difficult thing to do. And it means that it's more burdensome for the jurors and it's more intrusive for the judge because the judge gets to review the reasons. And if the judge doesn't find them satisfactory, then the verdict can be overturned. It's also hard for 12 people to agree on reasons. And the jurors weren't always able to provide the reasons with the specificity that the judge required. It raises all of these problems. It gives us pause whether this is something that is a good practice or not. Another featured topic was the use of jury roadmaps, which is also found in several European countries. Can you tell us a little bit about how those work? Sure. They're supposed to be an aid to jurors. And what they are, they're a series of questions that the court writes that would lead the jury through its deliberations to its verdict. On the one hand, you can say, this is an aid, this is supposed to be helpful, and a number of countries have opted for this. On the other hand, there are problems with it. And what are those problems? You could say whoever writes the questions is playing a more intrusive role in the jury's deliberations, structuring how they're to proceed. In an American jury, the jury gets to destructure its own deliberations, and judges are usually quite respectful of that. There's also the problem that if the questions proceed a certain way, certain bits of evidence won't be even considered by the jury. And there are a lot of jury scholars who think that it's important that the jury decide for itself which pieces of evidence to consider and how much weight to give them. Is there an analogy to be drawn between both of these mechanisms, the reason verdict and the jury roadmap, to other forms of trial that we have in this country that are not the traditional general verdict? So for example, reason verdicts seem a whole lot like maybe bench trials where you may get actually an opinion from the judge or special verdicts. And special verdicts 
also have a lot of aspects that are similar to the jury roadmap because you're asking jurors specific questions. I would say the comparison with a special verdict is particularly apt, and that's something that can be used in a civil trial. So it's a series of questions that are designed to lead the jury through its deliberations. But it's not used in a criminal case where typically a general verdict is what is asked of the jury. What can scholars studying American juries, and I think more broadly the American system of proof, learn from these European institutions of reason verdicts and jury roadmaps? I think we're very worried about these kinds of things. Not all American jury scholars, but certainly quite a number of them. And I would say that one distinction, one reason the Europeans opt for this is usually coming out of a civil tradition, they have a great deal of faith in professionals and less faith in lay people. Whereas in the United States, we tend to have a lot of faith in the ordinary citizen and some suspicion of government officials. These techniques are a way of assuaging the fears about using lay people. Whereas if we don't have those fears, there's much less to assuage and there are new risks that are entailed or new potential harms. And so many American jury scholars tend to be reticent about these two particular changes. Now, of course, to the extent that these changes, as we just discussed, are not that different from the special verdict, maybe there's not a whole lot to be worried about. Well, I think in the criminal case, you really want to protect the defendant even the Supreme Court has looked at the criminal jury trial as the best protection we can give a criminal defendant. And so anything that undermines the jury independence and jury power and gives more power or authority to the judge would be viewed with some suspicion. We tend to want to leave the jury to do its deliberation as it sees fit with the idea that it might not always be able to give reasons, but we tend to trust the result it reaches. As with much of really good comparative work, it basically gives us a window in on ourselves and how we actually view the jury. So it seems that two of the things that come out of this work is this idea that first, we are much more comfortable with lay reasoning and lay decision makers in this country versus many of the European countries. And the second thing that you raise is that in the criminal context, are you suggesting that the jury is there to give every benefit possible to the defendant? I think so. I think that's how our system is structured, and I think we respect that. I do think the Europeans, at least at this conference, not all of them, but there was this general respect for the professional and this misgiving about the layperson. And we had the opposite with the Americans. Part of it, too, is that with our jury trials, we have a lot of institutional constraints on the jury. The Europeans didn't necessarily have. So we have wadir, we have peremptory challenges, we have group deliberation, we strive for a diverse jury. All of those are ways of trying to ensure that the jury will be impartial. 
But if you don't have those features and you're worried, is the jury going to be biased or can it be impartial, imposing reason giving might be one way of assuaging your fears. Is there also an additional aspect to this? Accuracy is really what we've been talking about so far, I think. That jurors, at least the way I have framed it, the idea is that we are comfortable with having lay decision makers make decisions or make accurate decisions. There's an additional entire political aspect to this as well. There's a participatory democratic aspect to the jury trial. Does it suggest then that our love of the jury has to do with those non-accuracy reasons as opposed to the accuracy ones? I think so, but I don't think it's new. I think you can go back to the writing of Alexis de Tocqueville in 1835, Democracy in America, when he talked about the jury being above all a political institution. And it's still true today. And I don't think he meant political in the sense we talk about political today, but political in the sense of self-governance. And the jury teaches that. He describes the jury as a free school. And I think it still serves that function, but also as a way of serving as an antidote to the power of the executive, the power of the legislature, and even the power of judges. So juries serve that function. I think that's always been important. And the jury is a political institution in all those senses. We reserve those cases that are truly the hardest cases that have no clear right or wrong answer for the jury. And so in that sense, we want accurate fact-finding, but we also understand that these decisions get made based on community values and norms, and that's where the jury comes in. Is this specific to the criminal trial, do you think, or is this actually both criminal and civil? I would say both civil and criminal. Think of the McDonald's case, if you want an example of civil. The jury as an institution, the practices are the same, the procedures are the same, so I think of it as cutting across. What does this all say about the vanishing jury? We almost never have jury trials anymore. I talk to attorneys that talk about how these days most courtrooms are empty. What does that tell us about what our values are in terms of the jury and their importance? I do think the dwindling or the vanishing jury is a problem. And certainly if the numbers dwindle much more, we won't have a jury system. Having said that, though, I think it's really not about the numbers. The jury trial is time-consuming, it's expensive, and so it makes sense to reserve it for the most difficult cases. But those cases occupy uh, far more space and attract far more attention, even given their small numbers. So I would say that the jury continues to play a really central role, even though we don't have very many jury trials and fewer in federal court than in state court. So Nancy, the final question that I usually ask guests is what further work needs to be done to follow up on the research that they've done? I think in your case, though, your conference series basically does precisely this framing. So let me ask you a slightly different but related question. In what ways do you think our understanding of the jury will change over, say, the next decade? In other words, 
What's the exciting, cutting-edge work that's being done now that will be the next great advance in your field? Certainly, the comparative work is really interesting. I started out as a jury scholar focusing on the American jury, and it's only over time as I started learning about the different experiments going on in different countries that I really paid attention, and I think we'll continue to learn because countries are experimenting, and we'll be able to watch the results of their experimentation. So that's one area. I think we know a lot more about how people learn nowadays, and we'll continue to draw insights from that and introduce it to the jury experience. So for example, having a written copy of the instructions, being able to take notes, being able to ask questions, such basic things we now allow jurors to do. Technology. Technology is changing. There have been people who have written about virtual reality in the courtroom and whether that should be allowed, not allowed as part of evidence. The paperless trial and whether jurors will soon be looking at exhibits on their iPads instead of one document passed around. And the jury trying to control or eliminate discrimination during jury selection. One of my pet projects, but the peremptory challenge and its fate. So I think all of these areas are areas to watch in the future. Do you think that the days of the peremptory challenge are numbered? I would like to believe so. At the very least, you have some Supreme Court justices being willing to consider the possibility. You have judges talking about it and writing about it. And you have lawyers, particularly defense lawyers in capital cases, talking about it. I realize we've been talking about it for a long time, and it does seem like it's a tradition that's hard to uproot, but I hope that that's one tradition that we could change. And again, if you look to England and Wales, they did away with the peremptory challenge and they continue to survive with their jury system, and jury selection goes much more quickly, and they seat much more diverse juries. Well, Nancy, thanks so much for coming on the show. I look forward to seeing what the fruits of your set of conferences are in the future. Thanks very much. Although jury research is often thought sui generis and not necessarily associated with evidence scholarship, it undoubtedly plays a vital role in understanding the process of proof. And from this proof perspective, the two topics I raised during the interview segment, reason verdicts and jury roadmaps, are simply fascinating. On the issue of reason verdicts, why exactly is it that we allow juries to make general verdicts? We require reason judgment in almost every other area of law. Indeed, reason judgment seems the very essence of law. Yet we shield juries and their verdicts from further inquiry. One reason offered by Nancy ties us back to our podcast with Mike Pardo and group decision-making. Asking a group to decide on reasons, as opposed to a simple result, can really complicate things. My conversation with Nancy after the segment suggested a related reason. To the extent that we give juries hard cases, whether because they are factually uncertain or because they involve tough moral judgments, perhaps we don't ask the jury for reasons because we want a holistic, blink-like judgment. We're concerned that the post hoc rationalizations, 
or the jury's inability to articulate those post hoc rationalizations would simply get in the way of what we really wanted in the first place. I am similarly intrigued by the jury roadmaps and their implications. As I suggested, special verdicts are in a sense jury roadmaps, and both can be used to control or at least guide seemingly unpredictable or fractious juries. Why are these the exception rather than the rule? As Nancy discussed, the threat of manipulation is of course one concern. But again, as in the case of reasoned judgments, it seems that the legal system is looking for holistic moral judgments, and roadmaps to those are often unavailable. That does it for this week's episode of Excited Utterance. Support for Excited Utterance was generously provided by the Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producer for this episode was Alex Nunn, and the production editor was Carson Smith. Music was provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next week when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.